Well, good evening again, everybody. Keep your Bibles open there at Joshua chapter 10. And good job, Kelly and Andy, for reading. And if I pronounce the names different to you, uh, you're probably right. Um, So well done for getting through all those places and and people. Let's pray. And you've got a, a service, a sermon outline inside your service sheet as well, if you're someone who likes to write things down to help you Uh, remember and put into practice what you're hearing from God's Word. But let's pray as we spend this time together. Our Heavenly Father, You are our God and our King. You are seated on the throne. Remind us of how significant that is. For when we feel under threat, when we feel worried, when we're anxious, when we can't see the way forward, remind us that You've got it all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When I was 19 at university, I had a a casual job at a toy store in a major shopping centre in southwestern Sydney, and it was known as a pretty rough part of town. But as a 19-year-old, I didn't have a car to get around, so I'd walk to work, and then I'd walk home as well. And one afternoon, I I was walking home from work, and I got to this street corner, and there was a, a group of young teenage boys on this corner, and they stopped me from being able to walk past them. And then one of the boys said to me, give us your wallet. Now at that point, I I kind of froze and a few thoughts went through my mind. The first thought was I'd just been to the ATM and I had a lot of cash in my wallet to pay for a church camp that I was about to go on. And there's no way I was just going to give up that hard-earned cash. And the second thing that popped through my mind was these are just small teenage kids. And there's no way I want the reputation of being mugged by a bunch of kids. So I politely said to them, no thank you, move out of the way. Which didn't go down so well. Because one of the older boys then reached into his jacket and said, give us your wallet, I have a knife. Now what would you do at that point? He didn't pull out the knife. So I thought, oh maybe he's bluffing. But that's a bit of a risk to take, isn't it? And then I thought, they're just kids. I could go all karate kid on them and that will be excellent, except I didn't know karate. So I was like, the white flag of surrender needs to come out. It's just not a risk that's worth taking. And as I started to reach into my back pocket to pull my wallet out, a car driving past stopped. And then out of this car stood this tall, large Samoan angel. That's all I can say. (laughs) And he walked up to these kids and he just, in this deep Aslan-like voice, what's going on? And the kids just took off. (laughs) And then I'm kind of shaking a little bit still. My wallet's still there. There's no knife. The guy just got back into his car and left. I didn't even get a chance to say thank you. This Samoan angel just turned out of nowhere. But then I managed to walk home, still shaking, but everything was okay. Courage is one of those virtues that we all long for, but courage in the real world is risky, isn't it? particularly when you are under threat, it's risky to to challenge those threats when you don't know what the outcome might be. And so it's easier to fly the white flag of surrender than to put your neck on the chopping block, so to speak. And I want to suggest it's the same with the Christian life. You might recall that Jesus himself said that to be a Christian in this world, Jesus said in John 16, you will have trouble. Suffering is part of the Christian life. And I don't think it's imaginary paranoia to say that even at the moment in the 
current environment that we live in, even in Western culture and Sydney, Australia, that the environment is anything but pleasurable for Christians and it can be open hostility at times as well. And of course, that's not limited to Christians in famous Australian rugby union teams or in media or in New South Wales politics. The ordinary Christian feels this pressure at times. I'm sure that you have felt it at times. The ordinary believer who feels intimidated by their non-Christian friends at school. The ordinary believer who feels intimidated by their non-Christian colleagues at work. The ordinary believer who feels the weight of being mocked by their own family members for their faith. Ordinary believers who want to speak up for Christ, who long to speak up for Christ, they know that that's the best thing that they can do for a world that's dying, is to speak up for Christ, to share the good news, but yet can be so overwhelmed by the threat and the fear and wave the white flag. Why is it like this? Why is it like this? Well, I want to suggest it's because the spirit of the kings of Canaan in Joshua are very much alive even today. We have been studying the book of Joshua this term at church, and if you're visiting us tonight, you're right in the middle of it, but welcome anyway. And we've seen God leading the nation of Israel into the promised land, but they haven't been welcomed with flowers and chocolates by the inhabitants there. In fact, last week in chapter 9, we saw that there was this growing alliance of hostile enemies toward the nation of Israel. And that continues into chapter 10 tonight as well. But there's much that we can learn from this chapter about how to survive as a Christian when the environment is hostile. So let's have a look at it again. We're going to start in verse 1 to 5. We're not going to read the whole thing again, but here we're introduced to another axis of evil, a, a growing alliance of kings and nations against Israel. There's five of them that we're told in verse 1 to 5. The, the five kings of the Amorites, the kings of Jerusalem, Hebron, Yarmouth, Lachish and Eglon, but however you pronounced it was probably better than that. And there you can see they're the five kings to the south of where Joshua uh, is living with the Israelites at this stage. Incidentally, if you're into Bible trivia, this is the first time in the Bible that we hear the city of Jerusalem, the very first time. It's alluded to in Genesis when Melchizedek comes to Abraham, but only alluded to. Here it's openly talked about the city of Jerusalem. So lock that away next time you have a Bible trivia competition. And we're told here that these five kings advanced to make war against Gibeon. Now Gibeon we met last week, do you remember? They're the group of people that live near Joshua. Joshua was at Gilgal, the Gibeonites are near there. And they're the guys that deceived Joshua and the Israelites to enter into a, a peace treaty. And it's precisely because they've made a treaty with Israel that these five Amorite kings want to advance against them into war. In fact, the king of Jerusalem says to the others in verse 4, we will attack Gibeon because they have made peace with Joshua and the Israelites. Gibeon is being targeted for war. Why? Because they have now identified themselves with the people of God. And that's still very much alive today isn't it when somebody wants to identify themselves with the people of God even today somebody who says I'm a Christian often they then become the target of the powerful forces of the day the leaders the media 
politicians. And I reckon it would have been really easy for the people of Gibeon at this point to wave the white flag and surrender to the five kings. Maybe even join them in their alliance against Israel. Kind of do a 180 and flip on Israel and and join the others. And how often do we see Christians and even whole churches and denominations today when the pressure is on, when the threat is real, cave in and even join the powers of the day. I was disturbed this week just to hear of my own denomination, the Anglican Church in Australia, the Diocese of Wangaratta in Victoria, has decided against what Scripture says, against what the wishes of the entire Anglican communion in Australia says, and to bless same-sex marriages in their diocese. But despite the pressure to reject Israel, Gibeon doesn't do it. In fact, we're told in verse 6 that they reach out for help. They get on the email, the phone in the ancient world and they say, come and help us, come and save us, literally, is what they say. Why did they call for help? Why didn't they turn and join the others? Well, it's because they know God is with Israel. They have made peace with Israel and therefore, by extension, they are now at peace with God. And they know, just as Paul would later say in the book of Romans, if God is with you, Who can be against you? And so the call goes out for help. Now, if I was Joshua at this point, I would be very tempted to turn a blind eye or a deaf ear toward the Gibeonites. Because remember, these are the rotten guys who deceived you into making a treaty to begin with. And this is your chance to get back at them. Oh, you won't actively join in the war against them, but you'll just turn away. And just allow them to be destroyed and then your problem is gone. Except Joshua's not like me. When he makes a treaty, and in the ancient Near East, when you make a treaty, you commit to the treaty. We saw that last week. And it's likely that Joshua has learned from his mistake in chapter 9, where he just made a decision without consulting the Lord. Here it looks like that he has prayed and maybe asked God for wisdom. What should I do? Should I go and defend the Gibeonites, the deceivers? Because God turns up and speaks in verse 8. God who has been relatively silent in the last couple of chapters, but here he now speaks and tells Joshua what to do. Have a look at verse 8. The Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them, for I have handed them over to you. Not one of them will be able to stand against you. The call for help goes out, and the call from the Lord to Joshua is go and help and I will be with you. The call is answered. And so we move into the warrior of Israel, the rest of chapter 10. Encouraged by this word from the Lord, in verse 11, Joshua marches all night and gets to Gibeon, and he faces up against this axis of evil, and he defeats them relatively easily. And I say easily because the closer you look at the battle narrative, and we won't do it again tonight, It's clear that Israel and Gibeon were not fighting alone. God was fighting with them and for them. Did you notice in verse 10, as the battle begins, the Lord threw the enemies into confusion? Can you kind of just imagine what that might look like? These armies facing off and then one just kind of running around in circles, you know, not sure what to do. These trained warriors having no idea, confused. And then in verse 11, we're told that the Lord threw hailstones from heaven upon them. Kind of just picture that. It's been windy the last few days and just imagine huge hailstones just 
walk, you know, flying out of heaven uh, onto your enemies. And then, of course, in verse 12 and verse 13, at the request of Joshua, the Lord stops the sun and the moon in the sky, delaying their setting so as to ensure the absolute victory of the Israelites and the Gibeonites, the first daylight savings time in recorded history. Now, it's, of course, no surprise that this story of the sun standing still magically in the sky has fascinated readers of the Bible and a number of people have questions about how on earth can that happen? And maybe you've had questions about that in the past as well. Because we know the sun doesn't actually move in the sky. I hope you know the sun doesn't actually move. You know, it's the earth that spins on its own axis that makes it look like the sun is moving across the sky. So that means God must have stopped the earth from spinning on its own axis for at least a day. Can God do that? To do that, he must then manipulate the forces of motion and gravity and freeze the laws of physics to enable that to happen. What did that then look like for everybody else on the planet at the time? What did that look like for the solar system? What effect did that have on the universe? Big questions, right? This is not just stopping the waters of the river. This is changing the very fabric of the universe for a moment of time. We have lots of questions, don't we? I'm sure you do. But whatever questions we have, if our starting point is that it's reasonable to believe in a supernatural, all-powerful, majestic creator God like the God of the Bible who can just speak and a universe comes into existence, then it's not from the realm of impossibility for this same God to freeze the laws of physics for a moment in time without causing the universe to destroy itself or creating havoc. I don't know how he did it, but I'm prepared to believe that he did do it because I know who he is and what the Bible says. And I also know that he could raise a man from the dead, the same man that we've been singing about already tonight. Anyway, with the all-powerful God of the universe fighting for Israel and Gibeon, the results were devastating, therefore, for the enemies of God. Now, we didn't read it before, but we're going to have a look at it now. Just see the results of this battle at Gibeon. See the warrior of Israel in action. Verse 16. Now, the five defeated kings had fled and hidden themselves in the cave at Machedah. It was reported to Joshua, the five kings have been found. They are hiding in the cave at Machedah. Joshua said, roll large stones against the mouth of the cave and station men by it to guard the kings. But as for the rest of you, don't stay there. Pursue your enemies and attack them from behind. Don't let them enter their cities, for the Lord your God has handed them over to you. So Joshua and the Israelites finished inflicting a terrible slaughter on them until they were destroyed, although a few survivors ran away to their fortified cities. The people returned safely to Joshua in the camp at Machedah, and no one dared to threaten the Israelites. Then Joshua said, Open the mouth of the cave and bring those five kings to me out of there. That is what they did. They brought the five kings of Jerusalem, Hebron, Yarmouth, Lachish, and Eglon to Joshua out of the cave. And when they brought the kings to him, Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the military commanders who had accompanied him, Come here and put your feet on the necks of these kings. So the commanders came forward and put their feet on their necks. Joshua said to them, 
do not be afraid or discouraged. Be strong and courageous, for the Lord will do this to all the enemies you fight. After this, Joshua struck them down and executed them. He hung their bodies on five trees and they were there until evening. At sunset, Joshua commanded that they be taken down from the trees and thrown into the cave where they had hidden. Then large stones were placed against the mouth of the cave and the stones are there to this day. These five kings who had the pretense of all power and authority at the beginning of this narrative are nothing but weak, powerless men at the end even to the point where they have their their military commanders of their opposition, the Israelite leaders, with their feet on their necks before they are executed, hung from trees and buried in the cave, the very cave that they were hiding in. Now, as you read that, I don't enjoy reading that story, and, and as you read into chapter 11 and into chapter 12, It doesn't get any easier to read it unless you're a fan of Game of Thrones or Call of Duty video games. There's just bloodshed everywhere. Joshua's kill list just increases one king after another. There's five in this one chapter and then it just goes another king, another king, another king, another king. Turn to the end of chapter 12. There is just a list of kings that Joshua slays. In the end, totaling 31 kings of the promised land that Joshua slaves and you may have noticed it throughout Joshua there's always been an emphasis on the kings of Canaan and their particular destruction why do you think the author of Joshua wants us to to remember and to think about the kings of Canaan and why they are particularly being targeted by Joshua well you need to remember that the land of Canaan was meant to be in the plan of God the beginning of a new creation, a new garden of Eden where there is one king, one God and king and ruler of them all and no one else is worthy to take his throne. So either these kings lay down their crown or their crown is taken from them. Now for many Christians today, this vision of God as a warrior king, a fierce lion, doesn't sit easily with us. We're used to seeing pictures of our King Jesus in stained glass windows with flowing blonde hair and blue eyes with a a baby lamb under one arm and a, a human baby in the other, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, soft and tender. And of course, Jesus is tender. And you need to remember that when he had the opportunity to fight for his life, he refused to pick up the sword. The enemies of Jesus conspired against him like the axis of evil in the time of Joshua. And yet, unlike Israel, Jesus was killed. He was the one hung on a tree and buried in a cave like one of his enemies. But that was no accident. Although it looked powerless and weak, you must remember that the one who could stop the sun in the sky, the one who could walk on water, the one who could speak and raise a child back to life. Do you think he could have stepped off the cross if he wanted to? Of course he could have. The hands that flung stars into space could not hold him to the cross if he didn't want them to be there. What looked weak and powerless was actually the great victory of God over his enemies. For as Jesus willingly gave up his life, he was simultaneously bearing the curse of sin, but also breaking 
the curse of sin, which was confirmed when he rose miraculously from the dead. The stopping the sun in the sky, that's big. Coming back to life after you died is even bigger. And at that moment, the three great enemies of God were placed under the feet of Jesus. He had his foot on their necks. Sin, death and the devil. Sin has been paid for. Death has been overcome by love. And the devil has now had his power stripped away by the victory of the Christ. And of course, we cannot avoid the picture of Jesus in the book of Revelation. In Revelation 19, when Jesus returns as the final judge of the world, he's not pictured as the soft figure of stained glass windows. He is the fierce rider on the white horse, the one who will make any future kings of Canaan on this earth look like toy soldiers, who will feed their corpses to the birds of the air. That is our king. He is tender, but he is tough, and we need to remember that. And so if you're not a follower of King Jesus yet, can I encourage you in love to consider, reconsider your position before this king? As we said over the last few weeks, this king is still giving you time to lay down your crown before him, like Rahab, like Gibeon. He doesn't desire the death of the wicked, but they turn to him and live. Don't play games with him. Can I encourage you to, to lay your crown down before him, to turn to him today? It's much better to sit at his feet than to be under his feet. Now, as I said at the beginning of this sermon, I believe that Joshua 10 has a lot to encourage Christians, which is most of us tonight, about how to survive a hostile world and environment. This, I think, is Joshua chapter 10 in a nutshell. When you feel under threat, and I'm talking to Christians, when you feel under threat, remember who is on the throne. When you feel under threat, remember who is on the throne. And there's a couple of reasons in Joshua 10 that can give us encouragement to do that. Firstly, to be encouraged by his promise, God's promise that is. Because you remember before heading into battle, Joshua heard the voice, the reassuring voice of the Lord. Do not be afraid, God says to him, for I have handed them over to you. And that wasn't just a word from God, that was a promise from God, a promise of certain victory. And Joshua, encouraged by that promise, moved into action and followed the Lord into battle when we feel under threat we too can remember his promise it may not be the exact promise in Joshua chapter 10 but our Lord has given us some great promises to hold on to when we feel under threat remember I said at the beginning of this sermon Jesus said a reality check if you live in this world as a Christian you will find trouble but at the end of that sentence in John 16 33 he also made a promise he said but take heart or take courage, for I have overcome or I have conquered the world. What a great promise that we can hold on to. We all often remember the Great Commission in Matthew 28. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. But what we often forget is the, the great comfort that follows the Great Commission. 
a great promise of the Lord Jesus where he says, and behold, I will be with you always, even to the very end of the age. What great promises that can encourage us to walk out of this place into whatever the world will throw at us tomorrow. What great encouragements that we can hold on to. Our God is with us and for us. Of course, the best way to be encouraged by God's promises is to regularly listen to them as we've been reminded by Chris uh, tonight. It's no accident, I believe, that the sword in the armour of God pictured in the book of Ephesians in chapter 6, the sword of the Spirit, which is what? The Word of God. The promises of God. The more we hear the Word of God and take His promises to heart, the more they encourage us the more strength we have to go into the world and fight against the evil that's there and to even fight the evil that's in our own heart as well. When you feel under threat, remember who was on the throne, the one who has made promises to you and keeps them. The second encouragement, I think, from Joshua chapter 10 is this, to be emboldened by his power. Because you remember, as Joshua moves into battle, it's very obvious to him that God is fighting with him and for him, confusing his enemies, raining hail down from heaven. And as Joshua sees that visible part of God's power, it emboldens him to ask for the impossible. Lord, stop the sun so that we have more light to destroy our enemies. An impossible prayer. And yet God answers him. In fact, that's what the writer of Joshua wants to focus on, on that great miracle Turn to verse 14 of chapter 10. We skipped over it before, but have a look at it closely. After the sun has been stopped in the middle of the sky, verse 14, we're told there has been no day like it before or since when. Now, I expect the author to say when the Lord stopped the sun in the sky. You know, it's never happened again. But that's not what the author says. He says there's not been a day like this when the Lord listened to the voice of a man because the Lord fought Israel. What the author wants us to focus on is the fact that Joshua prayed and the Lord listened to him. When you realise the one who is on the throne, you can pray bold, audacious, impossible prayers to him. You can ask him for anything. Now, some people might be tempted to think, well, if God is so sovereign, so all-powerful, if already has planned out the future, then what use is my prayers anyway? Everything's going to happen the way that it's going to happen. But I want to say to you, that's precisely the reason you ought to pray and can pray. Because God is so powerful that he can use your bold prayers in the present to bring about his plans into the future. He's that strong and that powerful. He can do that. And when you understand that about him, you have every reason to pray and to pray big and bold prayers. Now, of course, God never promises to answer all our prayers the same way that he answered Joshua's. Remember, God is not a piñata in heaven that we can whack with a stick every time we want some goodies to come down. Jesus said, pray, your will be done, not my will be done. But that's not meant to limit the boldness of our prayers. God is our heavenly Father who delights to give good gifts to his children. And so if there's something that you want or that you would really desire God to do in your life or in somebody's life or in our world, you pray and you ask him, you submit to his will, yes, but you ask. When you remember who is on the throne, miracles can happen. 
The sun can stand still. Wars can cease. Political leaders can change. Cancer can be overcome. Debts can be paid. Addictions can be conquered. Relationships can be mended. Visas can be given. People can be become Christians. Do you believe that? When you know who is on the throne, you can believe that. My mother-in-law, who has gone to glory now, she knew who was seated on the throne and she would pray big, bold prayers for her family, her church and her world. Ness often says that sometimes she caught her arguing with God. She would have that posture of humility. She knew who God was, but she also knew that he can do anything. And so she'd tell God what she wanted God to do and wasn't afraid to ask big, bold things. When you understand who is on the throne, you can face any threat. When I was walking home from work that fateful day all those years ago, a big Samoan angel rescued me from certain danger. But all of us who have come to Christ, we have someone more powerful than a Samoan angel on our side. We have the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So be encouraged tonight by his promises to you. Be empowered, emboldened by his power that he has already shown you. And keep following him. It's surely the best thing to happen. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you've raised your son from the dead. That he is now seated at your right hand as the King of kings and Lord of lords. We long for the day when he will down from heaven in all his glory to right every wrong, to restore this world, to bring the new heavens and the new earth. In the meantime, Father, if there are little crowns on our head that we're holding on to, tonight we lay them down at his feet. We ask for forgiveness for the times when we think that we are in control. And we acknowledge Jesus' rightful rule over our own hearts and minds and lives again tonight. And Father, as we head into another working week or week at school or university, we don't know what will come. But if there is threats and hostility towards us, your people all over the world, help us to remember that you are on the throne. May we be encouraged by your promise and be emboldened by your power that we might pray big prayers and entrust ourselves to you. Thanks, Mike. What an encouragement to um, do what we've talked about already in the service, to, to pray and to pray big. Um, I'm going to give you a moment to um, just uh, gather your